0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our Balling in the Six listeners. This is back by popular demand. This is going to be the NBA injury episode. So first time round, we looked at some of the uh, more common injuries in the NBA that have afflicted some of the game superstars. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at how they've recovered from these injuries. So have these players come back and maintain, say, like an all-star level and, um, Again, we'll be looking at it from a medical point of view, and then we'll be looking at how their stats evolved post-injury. So joining me today again is going to be Brother Mehmet, and welcome to you, Mehmet. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been a lot of demand, and I'm very flattered. So I think, yeah, let's carry on. Right, so the first injury we're actually going to be looking at is Derek Rose's ACL injury. I mean the kind of meteoric impact this has had on the league. We've seen so many what-if scenarios played out, especially um, if you guys watch uh, NBA YouTube as well. Uh, like People will do an innumerable number of Derrick Rose 2K simulations uh, with that Chicago Bulls team. So um, first off, we'll start off with the medical impact. So Mem, if you could just uh, go into that for us. Uh, as mentioned in the last episode, the ACL is a ligament, which means it connects two bones, so your thigh bone and your shin bone. So obviously once that bridge is torn, then the first thing that needs to happen for the body to recover is for that, to, for that bridge to reform. Um, and in the past, the main method for that was natural healing. So that means just making sure the player doesn't put any weight on it, just allowing the body to do its own job. Um, however, this was a much longer process. I had a much lower chance of recovery, um, complete reco- recovery, I should say, compared to modern scientific techniques. So if we look as far back as to the 1980s NBA, when we have statistics of players having uh, an ACL tear, it was considered a career-ending injury. Now, with modern science, obviously, you will, you see stories of players getting surgery for these kinds of injuries. And to look more specifically into that, that surgery requires getting tissue from somewhere else in the body that replicates the tissue in a ligament. Um, and the common places for this are the hamstrings, so obviously at the back of the thigh, or the quadricep which is at the front front of the thigh, getting a strip of tissue there and just using that to form that bridge between the two torn parts of the ACL. Um, and like I mentioned, this, is, this does allow much better recovery and even a chance that the player might be as close as possible to their former self before the injury. You then need months and months of rehab, rehab and recovery and for most players this is 9 to 12 months Um, and if we look at that time frame more specifically you're only allowed to walk on it after three to four months so that's three to four months of just complete isolation and no mobility Um, up to 90 percent of players in the current nba will have long-term success and return to as as close to their normal function as possible obviously they will never truly feel the same 8% Eight percent of players even saying that they can that they have developed permanent injuries to the knee. One of the biggest complications of an ACL tear that a lot of players talk about is the mental battle that follows after. So some players say that they only feel like their former self two years after the injury. So as I mentioned earlier, it takes nine to twelve months scientifically to recover, but that athletes really feel like their former self. That can take two years, which is a considerable amount of time, uh, especially if you think about a lot of player contracts. They're usually four to five years, so that can be two years out, and so and therefore it can be quite detrimental for the franchise as well. Um, and like I mentioned last episode, there was the example of Kristaps Porzingis, who obviously the New York Knicks were hoping to build an entire franchise around. So. Um, once these injuries do happen, there you know, there's a, it's not just the player affected, but the entire team around it. Thanks for that analysis on Chris Stapp's and on the medical impact of the injury moment. I'll probably be looking at Derek Rose for the most part just because with Chris Tapp's, I think uh, maybe we've seen one year of his return with the Dallas Mavericks, but uh, we don't have a as large a sample size in terms of what impact it's going to have for the rest of his career as we do have with Derrick Rose. So, when it comes to Derrick Rose, I'm firstly going to analyse the situation in which the injury happened because I mentioned that last episode, it was during a playoff game against the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the playoffs and it was really in meaningless garbage time. So, The Bulls were up by 12 points with a minute and 20 seconds left and when most other teams would have had Derrick Rose off the floor, Tom Thibodeau thought that the team still needed him there because, quote uh, from the man himself, he said that he felt that the tides were turning and also essentially questioned the intelligence of the NBA reporting media for questioning his decision. When we look at what happened before this injury, uh, Derek Rose placed some of the heaviest minutes in the league and this was during the first three, four years of his career. He was on around 34 to 36 to 37 minutes a game during those four years and given the way that he played and given how athletic he was, many coaches would have chosen to maybe keep him around 32, 33 minutes a game. And although those three four minutes, uh, it may not seem like a big deal for us, it's about the fact that those minutes are used to rest and recover. And in moments when the Bulls were in garbage time, that's when Derrick Rose should have been essentially banned from stepping foot on the court. And that's what didn't happen with this Bulls team, unfortunately. My earliest memory of Derek was actually in the 2010 world championship where uh, the US ended up playing Turkey in the finals and um, it was a, an exceptionally exciting moment for us. I, I was watching with Mehmet in Turkey when it was happening and I just remember seeing uh, firstly it was a young KD who looked absolutely monstrous even then. But it was also Derrick Rose leading from the point guard position, and I'd never really heard of him. But I could tell then that he was a very, very special player. And this was really my first escapade or adventure into basketball. So it was just really exciting to see somebody play with that level of dynamism. Now, personal story aside, going back to the injury, so it, he was out for a whole year. Um, during this was during the 2012-2013 season and interestingly the Bulls actually managed to still make the playoffs that year and uh, they actually looked reasonably good uh, despite Derrick Rose being out and immediately after he got injured they actually lost to the Philadelphia Sixers in that first round so uh, going into that 2012-2013 season uh, many Media outlets and fans, including myself all the time, didn't think the Chicago Bulls would amount to much in that 2012-2013 season because it was they were seen as, for the most part, a one-man team, a one-man show, with Derrick Rose leading the hell. I mean, they had those other nice pieces, like uh, Luol Deng. Uh, they drafted Jimmy Butler in 2011, and he was just starting to develop in that season. Of course, they had Taj Gibson. And Carlos Boozer, but that team was very much centered around Derek. And when we actually look at some of the preceding seasons, we we'll, we will actually see the impact that this injury had. Because during 2013-2014, Derek came back. However, he only played 10 games, and he shot the ball quite inefficiently before then tearing his right meniscus. So it was in the same knee as his ACL injury which kept him out for the rest of the season. Then we go into the 2014-2015 season where again Chicago uh, were having a pretty good season and Derek ended up playing over 50 games however he again injured his right meniscus and was out for 4-6 weeks before then returning to the playoffs where the Bulls would reach the second round before eventually going out to the Cleveland Cavaliers and obviously this was the year in which the Cavs got to the finals for the first time against the Warriors so this Chicago Bulls team if Derek hadn't gotten injured I believe during this period they likely would have won a championship in my mind because their main competition was that Miami Heat LeBron team Uh, At least that that would have been their main competition for two, three years. And it's particularly in, I would say, the 2013-2014 season, which is when they lost to the Spurs. I think the Bulls would have been the prime team in the East. Imagine this is a team that managed to draft Jimmy Butler even during... Uh, Derrick Rose's, well, following Derrick Rose's NBA MVP season. So they would have had the tandem of Jimmy Butler and Derrick Rose uh, with the veteran savviness of a Taj Gibson, a Carlos Boozer, and a Joaqu- Joaquin Noah. And so to say that this injury was one of the most unfortunate things to happen to the Eastern Conference and to the NBA in the 2010s decade. Is certainly not an exaggeration. After being traded to the Knicks, um, he had a reasonable season with the Knicks. He was then signed to the Cleveland Cavaliers, where Derek disappointed, and he eventually was traded to the Jazz, where he was then waived. At that stage, many fans were fearful that potentially this was the end of Derek's career, because although his athleticism wasn't massively diminished, to be honest, compared to. Uh, pre-injury, he's still an incredibly athletic and dynamic player even now. However, it was the fact that his injury happened in a landscape where the NBA was changing, where there was an increasing emphasis on being a proficient outside shooter due to the emergence of Steph Curry. Derek had never been a particularly uh, sound defender injury, any reliance on his athleticism and balance in that area was lost and diminished which meant his powers of defence regressed even further and so really if all of this didn't happen, if his injury didn't happen, I'm sure Derek would have been able to adapt his game and we're actually even seeing that now because in the past two years with both the Minnesota symbols and the Detroit Pistons, although he hasn't shot as well from the three-point line in Detroit. He actually shot 37% from three with the Timberwolves in his season there, and with both teams, he's been exceptionally efficient uh, from the floor. Uh, he, he's been over 45% and uh, from the field, and you know he's always been a good free throw shooter. He's been the main facilitator for those teams, uh, getting four to five assists a game, and so. This is a Derek Rose in the latter stage of his career after suffering four to five knee injuries. So, not only did he suffer that ACL tear, like uh, we've uh, stated at the very start of his whole injury process, but he tore his right meniscus twice. He's tore the meniscus in his left knee, and so his knees have really just failed and given up on him in the preceding years. And despite that. He's still playing at, a, in all honesty, he's been playing at a close to an all-star level. And although some media outlets may be overlooking that, basically due to the fact that he's been playing on some quite poor teams who uh, haven't been or aren't going to make the playoffs, it, that shouldn't overshadow Derek's performance because he really has turned things around in the last two years. That was a recap of Derek Rose's injury history and recovery and how he's been able to bounce back from that injury after initial struggles uh, doing so. And next we'll move on to the Achilles injury and specifically we'll look at how it impacted Kobe Bryant. Getting to that we'll look at the medical prognosis of the injury so we'll look at what the likelihood of recovery is from the injury. Yeah so much like the ACL tear There has been a profound progression in the recovery process um, over the last 20 to 30 years. So surgery is recommended for athletes and young people. Um, So much like the ACL tear, this means getting a graft, so a piece of tissue from somewhere else in the body, and using it to bridge the gap between the two torn parts of the Achilles. Now once the surgery is done, this ankle needs to be in a cast and brace. For up to six to twelve weeks without putting any weight on that leg, and um, so that obviously means that athlete needs to go around in a pair of crutches. You then need to start physio, and players can return within four to six months. Um, however, a lot of players say that they never feel the same until over a year after the injury has actually happened. Now. Um, If the tear happens, so based on what statistics show, if the tear happens to someone who's over the age of 30, then it usually cuts the career down to just another one to three years. However, if that happens to someone under 30, it's not career-ending, and some players can actually come back very close to their former self, again, with such a long rehab the mental struggle plays a massive role in the recovery process for the player. Especially because it requires so much patience and because every day you're only doing the minimal recovery to prevent any pain. But also, a lot of players won't ever know if even after six months of rehab they'll ever truly be themselves again. So again, links back to the mental side of the injury. So it seems like there are a lot of similarities. Remember, has pointed out between the Achilles Injury and the ACL injury, and interestingly, when I talk about Kobe Bryant, you're going to see some of the parallels drawn between his injury and Derrick Rose's injury, which is very interesting because Kobe suffered his injury in the same year as Derrick Rose, and he actually suffered the injury two or three weeks prior to Derrick Rose because he suffered the injury in the 80th game of the regular season, whereas Derrick Rose, as I said early in the episode suffered it in round one of the playoffs so that's already one eerie similarity now when we look at the circumstances in which this injury happened this also is slightly surprising because Kobe like Derek was having to pay, play a ridiculous amount of minutes and he had a a huge role within the Lakers team because he was pushing for the LA Lakers to make the playoffs And this was a team that didn't have a lot of cohesion. Of course, we know this as the Dwight Howard, Steve Nash, Kobe experiment, which ultimately failed. This was through no fault of Kobe because he actually had to deal with a lot of injuries to the squad as a whole. And he was putting up some of the best numbers he's ever put up in his career. I mean, he had so many 40 point games that season. He was playing the second most minutes in the league after only portland's Damian lillard who was drafted that year he was putting up over six assists a game during the regular season which is actually his highest total and he was actually dubbed uh as uh, magic Bryant during the season uh which was obviously a throwback to uh magic johnson's laker days so he was the primary scorer and he acted as the primary facilitator whereas Steve Nash took on more of a secondary playmaker role and a spot-up shooter, which goes to show how uh, versatile, flexible player Cobra is, because, uh, of course, Steve Nash is one of the best point guards in the world, so if you're playing point guard over Steve Nash, uh, two-time MVP Steve Nash, then you're certainly somebody who's able to create, and I think this kind of dispels some of the myths in the narrative that you know LeBron is a facilitator whereas Kobe and Michael didn't have that aspect to their game because they both certainly did. Getting back to the injury so it looked like Kobe was going to be out for maybe six to nine months Uh, despite what Mehmet said uh, he put six months as the upper limit for recovery from the injury but uh, for the NBA for professionals in the league it's actually typically slightly longer than it is for the normal individual due to how much uh, pressure and force uh, is needed from that uh, tendon in professional athletes and hence uh, it's a much slower rehabbing process to ensure that the uh, maximal uh, performance is generated from the tendon post injury. So, in typical Kobe fashion, there's uh, plenty of stories about how uh, intense Kobe's rehabbing regimen was, and um, during the whole of the October to November two-month period, it was almost like a daily Kobe watch. In terms of the media, would be picking up on any story of him scrimmaging or, um, you know, being present at the practice facility with his teammates and everyone was just uh, patiently waiting upon his return and return he did eventually in December of that season and um, the overall legacy of this injury as Mehmet said players over the age of 30 typically lose you know one to two years of their career if they sustain the injury during that period and of course Kobe was not only over the age of 30 this is somebody who'd been playing uh, superstar minutes for 12-13 seasons plus without suffering a major injury and hence uh, this was no average NBA 30 year old vet this is somebody who'd had a lot of mileage on their body and I think it showed because when we look at those last three seasons Anyone who watched those games knows that although Kobe isn't the type of player who solely relied on his athleticism, I do believe his power was significantly diminished. And it's not just from the numbers. He used to be one of the most efficient superstars in the league uh, pre-injury. And you look at his numbers post-injury, I mean, he barely averaged uh, a 40% Uh, field goal percentage during those three seasons he was terrible from the three point line and you could say maybe part of it was down to the fact that he had terrible teammates and so he didn't really have any support I mean he only really had a young and up and coming D'Angelo Russell to help him out but uh, he was playing with a bunch of scrubs and he regularly told his teammates how scrub like and garbage that they were but you know despite the fact that Kobe didn't live up to his pre-injury heights, the fact that he was averaging close to 20 points a game post-injury just again shows how impressive a player this man was and of course it was beautiful that he capped it off with that unforgettable 60-point performance when all the lights and cameras were on him, when it seems that the whole of Hollywood was out to watch him in his last game. It's only fitting of the man's career and the eventual legacy that he imprinted on the league. R.I.P. We're going to move on to Joel Embiid and his navicular injury. And in this episode, we're not going to analyse uh, it in the context of injury recovery because I think it's too soon to look at how it's going to impact on the longevity of Jaws' career. Uh, Suffice it to say that he has uh, seemed to reach his NBA ceiling or potential, whatever that may be, say if you think that's the best centre in the league and will more so also his discussions as part of the NBA prevention episode because I think it's a lot more interesting when we look at how exactly the 76ers chose to handle him and his injury. Could you provide us an insight into the recovery process from a medical standpoint? So for the navicular fracture, which is what Joel Embiid endured, the recovery time can vary a lot from player to player. So, the textbook recovery time is 12 weeks, as mentioned in most medical journals, but most will have pain and inflammation for up to 6 months. Players need to take all weight off that foot, and as mentioned in the last episode, because it is so hard to detect, the NBA teams are always very cautious about bringing players back too soon. So, the return has to be very gradual, which is obviously what happened in the case of Gael Embiid. Looking to the rehab of all three injuries, it largely revolves around strengthening all of the muscles surrounding the injury site and in the entire injured leg itself, because for months obviously the player has not put any weight onto it, Um, so without using that leg and the muscles, the muscle does waste away and not only does it appear appear a lot smaller but it's physically a lot weaker than the normal leg and, uh, obvious, and again this has to be very gradual because at the start of rehab there will still be a lot of pain and inflammation in the site which is where the mental struggle in the patients then comes into play. Thank you very much for that recap Mehmet so is it fair to say that when it comes to any potentially career-threatening injury, that although there is a large physical barrier to overcome and the player may never retain or achieve that same level of athleticism and dynamism that he had before the injury, that despite that, there is certainly a mental hurdle or obstacle for players to overcome as well. Yes, and this mental factor will vary a lot from player to player. Um, which is also why teams are putting such a big emphasis on hiring team psychiatrists as well, um, who not only support players throughout their entire career of a team, but do a lot of teams have started to do evaluations of players when they first get drafted, um, and looking at and finding ways to some, somehow summarize their mental toughness. So in case of occasions like this, in the future of their career where there might be an injury, they can somehow they can have somewhat of a prediction early on as to how they will respond. That's interesting, and you brought up another completely new point. Maybe that's something we'll look at in a future episode, talking about psychiatry and psychology within the sport. But just to round things off, I think uh, two examples of players who were impacted certainly mentally by the injury and it was very very visible for uh, even us NBA fans was uh, were the two injuries of Kawhi Leonard and Arkell Fultz because with Kawhi it's still something that he's dealing with to this day he's still sitting games out and load managing so to speak during the regular season uh, in order to deal with the after effects of his 2017 injury against the Warriors and whether he still has physical pain it's likely that he does Um, however to find a player that it's almost like a mystical religion surrounding this player as to what, how the injury affected him because when it comes to Markel fault it hasn't even been clarified as to whether he still suffers from pain in the shoulder we know certainly that that was something he was dealing with and the doctors at Philly were actually struggling to diagnose what exactly was wrong with that shoulder of his. However, in the years following and since his trade even to the Magic, we've seen all the after effects of this. We've seen him completely reinvent his jump shot. And when I say reinvent, I, I really I should be saying regress because it it, it looks like something from another dimension, from another planet. I, I haven't seen any NBA player shoot quite like Markel does. Was this necessitated due to a shoulder pain? Was this the only way he could shoot in order not to feel any sort of uh, uncomfortable sensation in his shoulder? Perhaps. But you would think that once that pain subsided, that he would look to return to his old form. And it looks like... It's still something he's struggling with, despite the fact that he has, of course, rebounded in terms of his performance in Orlando. So I think that's going to be a nice way to tie things up for this episode. So we've done a NBA recovery episode, which follows up from our medical analysis of these injuries in the first episode. I'm going to thank my co-host Mehmet for appearing with me today. And hopefully we can bring future sports medicine, NBA sports medicine episodes in the future, depending on demand, depending on if you guys want it. Episode was brought to you by the terrible twosome reporting live from Sheffield. Goodbye.